Hey, it's a Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories retold episode. My name is Brian. Let's celebrate Christy McVie. course is Say You Love Me from Fleetwood Mac's 1975 self-titled record. That's the one right before Rumors. And on lead vocals there, one of the many vocalists in that band uh, for the period that most people remember them, uh, that of course is Christine McVie, who we lost, uh, passed on it at the age of 79 years old. I've got to say, did not realize, did not do the math that... Christy McVie was almost 80. And what a career, what a life, what a voice. Uh, And so, you know, we do these retold episodes where we pull out uh, things from the library uh, when they become relevant again, when people are talking about the subjects. And so, of course, we have a great episode we're really proud of about Fleetwood Mac and all of the rock and roll bedtime stories. Well, not all of them, (laughs) a portion of the rock and roll bedtime stories surrounding them. But uh, a lot of the rumor and innuendo uh, does involve Christy McVie. You, you, you know, Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks really hogged the spotlight, but Christy McVie, she was a big part of this, right? It, let's let's just talk about this one. So, you know the song "You Make Love and Fun," and I think we talk about this in the episode, but this is worth mentioning at the top. "You Make Love and Fun" is a song very specifically written by Christy when she was having an affair with one of the crew members for Fleetwood Mac, and when her husband in the band, asked her what the song was about. She told him it was about their dog. So what I want you to do is go listen (laughs) to You Make Loving Fun and imagine that it is about your canine companion. Uh, That's like the best encapsulation of just how freaking crazy uh, all of this was that surrounded this band, this like sort of cloud that surrounded this band. But, you know, she was... I think a lot of times there's this attitude or there used to be this attitude where you would see these women in bands in the 70s and think that they were sort of put there as extra dressing or as, hey, we're just going to have this vocalist to add some layering or whatever. Christy McVie full-fledged, she wrote, okay, Rumors is considered one of the greatest records of all time. I think she's got four of those songs. Four of like the 10 songs on Rumors are Christy McVie songs. Uh, and she was a very early addition. She was in another band. And I think we talk about this in the in the core episode in a moment. But she was in a band uh, that was like called Chicken Shack or something, I think. And they would tour with the original Fleetwood Mac. Now, remember, and we'll talk about this, the original Fleetwood Mac was around for a long time before they were famous. And they were sort of a totally different band. And Chrissy McVie is part of that transition, but she comes from the blues. And there's there's a record where she was going by the name Christine Perfect. She put out a solo record before Fleetwood Mac, and you can find it uh, under Christy McVie on Spotify. Uh, but it is called the like the original Christine Perfect album or something. And you can hear her early work. She she was a blues rock person. And so it's she's not some, hey, let's window dress the band or let's bring in a pop vocalist to make us feel like a pop band. She's uh, more as blues, maybe more blues than the guys who started the band way back then. Um, okay, so we're just we're gonna go to the original episode, but I do want to listen to one more Christine McVie song because uh, this is one of the best. So Tango in the Night, do you know that record? That's the '87 record where things get real '80s, and there's some really good stuff on it. But I don't think anything is better than uh, everywhere. So let's listen to everywhere for a moment. This is Christy McVie at her best. Can you hear me calling out your name? You know that I'm falling and I don't know what to say. I speak a little louder, I'll even shout.
rest in peace, Christy McVie. And now a retold episode going all the way back to the beginning, the very beginning of 2022 for our episode on Fleetwood Mac. with me right that how it's like my dna it's like it's no 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 explain to me because that's where we're headed we're headed to a very particular record what i mean one of the things that's fascinated rock and roll storytellers about all of this for so long is that this lore a big chunk of it the the triangle the quadrangle the shape-shifting shape stuff uh it all happened while the band was creating what became not only their masterwork but what is now heralded as one of the greatest rock and roll masterworks ever made by anyone. And that, of course, is Rumors. So tell me your oh connection my... to Rumors. Oh, God. Oh, my gosh. This is so heavy. I mean, this is like childhood crazy weird stuff. Okay. Right. Are, are we about to hear so, that you were conceived to tracks on Rumors? Is that what's about to happen? Nah, nah. The timeline sort nah. of works out. No, I was conceived in like 73 or so, right? So because I was Oh, so a little, a little bit before Rumors. So the, the self-titled Fleetwood Mac record. Yeah, I might have been conceived to a Merle Haggard record, dude. I, I really don't know. So, so, so my sister graduated the same year of high school that Rumors came out, and when she left to go to college at Middle Tennessee State University (MTSU), she left the freaking eight track of Rumors behind. Love it, Love as, it. as well as as well as Toys in the Attic by Aerosmith. And right. There were some other things that were just amazing, but Rumors was the thing because when you would get to Dreams, as a three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old kid, imagine having like Mary had a little lamb versus like here you go like how dreamy stevie nicks was and how dreamy that song is yeah so 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 i had a connection to it because i listened to it like it was childhood songs like i remember never going back a bit back again and go your own way like and like don't stop was like a thing before it became like the clinton gore like awful terrible anthem and when i was a kid i went to the marshall county recreational center yo the rec center and we would swim and then when we would go back to the place to go eat that's all anyone played on the jukebox so this is like 80 81 or 82 so people were just playing the songs the 45s off of rumors and I would get those little like crystal sized burgers at this little place and go back and swim. So I listened to Fleetwood Mac before I was in kindergarten. And then once I was like socializing as a little kid, that record is imprinted everywhere around my childhood. I'm about, I'm about to ruin your childhood. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let, let me start by saying you're not the only one that loves this record. In 2003, it was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. In 2018, it was selected for preservation in the National Recording Registry, being deemed, quote, culturally, historically, or artistically significant by the Library of Congress. And in 2020, Rolling Stone moved it from, at one point, I think it was at like number 35 or number 25, Rolling Stone moved it to number seven on their list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. Now, I do have to point out, though, it was named Rumors because of all the scuttlebutt that was floating around about who was snuggling with whom uh, in, yeah, inside they, the band. Um, it, it literally was named after that. You you can take track by track. I mean, you named about half the tracks uh, a minute ago and talked about how important they were to you as a five-year-old. But let me just tell you what they're about. You can separate these tracks into piles. Yeah. Songs, uh, one of those piles would be called Songs Lindsey Buckingham wrote about Stevie Nicks. Um, yeah. Secondhand News, the album opener and my favorite track on the record. Uh, that's one of those. Right. Never Going Back Again, um, yeah. Go Your Own Way. All songs Lindsey wrote about Stevie. Stevie wrote about Lindsey. That's another pile. And, of course, your, uh, your nursery um, soundtrack, Dreams is in that part. Yeah. So I saw Seaweed. They were from Seattle, like sub pop band, and they uh, they played "Go Your Own Way," oh. and it was like before before the like it, it was weird because it was kind of cheesy. I'm trying to th- remember what my 
introduction to Fleetwood Mac was. It's definitely the songs on this record. Like these are the ones that I know. And then of course when I got into radio, we were playing them all the time. Um, you know, Rumors was your introduction to Fleetwood Mac, right? Catalog song. Yeah, 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 for sure. And we're gonna deep dive into the into what happens before rumors and sort of come up into rumors in this episode today, right? Because there's a whole lot. Like we, <laughs> we could spend I say this, I feels like I'm saying this a lot uh on, on intros to this show over the past few months because we've been talking about people like Dylan and Elvis and we really could do full podcast series on these people, right? Cause there's so many stories and so many rumors and so much to talk about, but Fleetwood Mac has an absolutely fascinating trajectory that runs all the way to now. Um, I mean, I, I we were not really going to talk about this, but let me just go ahead and spoil and say that there's like a lawsuit between Lindsey Buckingham and the rest of the band right now that I think is still active because they yeah, kicked them out a couple years ago. Yeah, and and Mike Campbell from the freaking Heartbreakers is in Fleetwood Mac, dude. Unbelievable. Hey, real quickly, I'm just going to spoil the Dave Grohl book. Real, for one of the things I did not know about, if, if I will just say this has nothing to do with Fleetwood Mac. Freaking okay. uh, the Dave Grohl storyteller book that came out at the end of last year is unbelievable. It's as good as you think it's going to be. And did you know that after Nirvana, Tom Petty called him and asked him to join the Heartbreakers? Yeah, absolutely. And and he did he did the SNL. Yeah, remember the so SNL? That, that's what he did. He did SNL, and then after that, they were like, "This was pretty good. You want to tour with us? You you know, I mean, I it, it it's probably like what it was like to tour with Nirvana, right? You get your own bus, and you have yeah. your own. And he's like, "What?" <laughs> and then he decided. I'm going to run these demos out of my trunk and see if I can get this band that I named after a uh, 1950s phrase to describe UFOs, Foo Fighters, if I could, uh, right. I could get this band off yeah. the ground. Yeah. And did I tell you I saw, when I saw the Foo Fighters for the first time? I you, only saw them once. You did? It, opening for Mike Watt? Yeah, it was it was Mike Watt and then Hovercraft, which was, was Eddie Vedder and... I don't. I think Pat Smear played in that too, and it was the forty watt in Athens, and it was like a college radio like showcase jerk off thing. Um, but I was like stuck kind of behind a banister, and I was like, well, "This kind of sounds like Nirvana Light," and that's what I thought about that. I still think about that. That first Foo Fighters record. I love like Hero and like you know, there's songs that that Grohl has written since then have been I think are really great and maybe better than every Nirvana song. Um, I want to read that book, man. I oh, didn't pick it up. It's so good. It's so good. So before we get distracted by Dave Grohl, because there's an Iggy Pop <laughs> story in there too that I can't wait for you to read. Um, but let's let's get back to Fleetwood Mac and let's talk about these songs. So we we've put the songs from rumors into stacks. And the really crazy part about doing this specifically when you're talking about Stevie and Lindsay is that they're literally putting words in each other's mouths. And, and not just once, for the rest of their careers. Imagine, just imagine, let's do a mental exercise, that your wife, or any past flame, uh, writes all their frustrations with you down, and then they're like, cool, not only do you have to read these once, we're now going to go on a stage every night for basically the rest of our lives, and you're going to recite these things to a beautiful melody that people that reminds people of being five years old. <laughs> yes, I know. It, it is It is. Freaking amazing, oh, and, like, and the thing, and and the thing that people don't know is that it isn't just about Stevie and Lindsay. No, no, no. That's where that's where we're going. But to misquote one of your favorite bands, it is a real head trip in every key. Um, let's yes. let's let's, let's back right. up. Let's back up because Stevie and Lindsay, to your point, are only the tip of the iceberg, and they aren't even part of this band for the first like big chunk yeah. of this band. Rumors yeah. is Fleetwood Mac's eleventh album. Right, yeah. So we got to rewind and figure out how they get here. Just for fun, I've already dropped the Clapton reference and the you know the uh, uh, the things about this story that are attached to that story. We can start with him. He had this band in the '60s called the Blues Breakers, and when he left the Blues Breakers, they got a guy to replace him named Peter Green. And yeah. when their drummer left, Peter Green suggested they hire a buddy of his that he'd been playing music with on and off for a while to hit the skids named Mick Fleetwood. And there was a guy named John McVie on the bass in the band. And they referred to the rhythm section because it was John McVie and Mick Fleetwood. They would call a Fleetwood Mac. Mac, V, and Fleetwood. Oh, I never put it together until 
today. Thanks. So they actually they were they were playing music sort of together in a side project. I can't remember if this was actually part of the Blues Breakers, but at one point those guys were jamming, and they had they named a song Fleetwood Mac because it was heavy on the rhythm section. So in '67, Peter Green pulls Mick aside and says, "Let's just do our own thing." And they know that they're going to need a bass player, so they go to John McVie and pitch him. And they're like, listen, if you'll come do this, we'll we'll call it Fleetwood Mac. Like, your name will be in the band. Oh, my gosh. That's so freaking weird. And here's the best part. He says no. <laughs> so they literally go without him. But they keep the name. So they, they've got this band named after John McVie, and John McVie's not in the band. Long story oh, that's short, really funny. it doesn't take that long for John to think like, okay, this sort of makes sense. But, I mean, if, if you think about John McPhee, he's making okay money playing with the Blues Breakers, and he's like, I don't know if this is going to go anywhere with these other guys. Um, but quick important note that brings us back to the Clapton-Harrison drama. Mick Fleetwood, when he was a teenager, started an on-again, off-again relationship with a girl named Jenny Boyd. Jenny had an older sister named Patty. No, that is so crazy. What is happening at this high school? Rock, rock, rock and roll high school. I know we, we rock, need rock, rock, We need Joel Selvin on the case. Uh, I don't care about history. I can't believe this is a thing. Yeah, so Mick, Mick Fleetwood, for, for a large portion of his life, is married to Patty Boyd's younger sister. Or is in a relationship with Patty Boyd's younger sister. We'll get into the particulars of their marriage. They're actually married, spoiler alert, they're actually married twice. Um... But by the by the way, probably kind of fun. Sounds like it. But here's the here's the thing about Jenny Boyd. Jenny Boyd's an interesting episode in her own right because she's Patty Boyd's younger sister, so she's in with the Beatles, so she knows yeah. all the Beatles and that whole crew. And she's there's a Donovan song. The freaking Donovan wrote about Jenny Boyd. Oh, is it is it my favorite song? What's your favorite song? Mellow Yellow. No, it's Juniper, Jennifer Juniper. Yes, yes, that's about Jenny Boyd. That's the dude, song. Dude, that is the best song. So wait, wait, wait. So Don <laughs> So Donovan wrote that song about Patty Boyd's younger sister. Who's married who is in a long term <laughs> relationship and married twice to Mick Fleetwood. Yes, that's a hundred percent true. Dude, listen. The fact that I kind of hit you with that song and you're like, oh, it's Jennifer Juniper. Like, dude, you got to listen to that song. It's it's in a movie, too, that you've seen. I can't remember which movie it is, but like it's a beautiful, beautiful, upbeat Donovan song. Anyway, keep going, man. OK, so first off, let's go back to the music for a minute. Do you I mean, you mentioned this. You said is your real starting point for Fleetwood Mac? Is it rumors? And I said, yeah, of course. And. So part of the reason you asked me that is it's important to state what Fleetwood Mac was doing in this first phase of the band. They're sort of like, we've talked about Genesis and Journey and how Genesis and Journey both had these periods that aren't the periods that anyone in America now thinks of when you mention those bands. Like they They're sounded totally different. Yeah, Not commercially successful at those periods, yeah. And so... Fleetwood Mac was a blues band. This is a song called Long Gray Man. Listen to this. Yeah, dude. She won't let me ride. This is Fleetwood Mac from the late 60s. Right. I've got a long gray Peter Green's still in the band. And they're they're literally called Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And so for me, it's it's when there was this guy and his girlfriend kind of budged their way together in the band. Is where the band came for me, and you apparently too. Uh, yeah, but we're it's going to take us a minute to get to there, depending right. on which guy and his girlfriend you're talking about, because there's a few of them. <laughs> this, so the second record they drops in '68, and they call a friend to play keyboards. This is the first guy and girlfriend, right? But her name is Christine Perfect. And she was in another blues band that was popular at the time called Chicken Shack. And what's really funny when you go back into these histories of these bands, and, and any band is like this, but it's it's so interesting to see it with the historical view of Fleetwood Mac, one of the biggest bands of all time. And they were in these scenes where Fleetwood Mac was like not well-respected, not well-known, and they were playing with all these bands or playing with people from these bands who were in bands that were more popular than them. So... You know, the Blues Breakers were a big deal. Freaking Eric Clapton was in the Blues Breakers, right? But nobody talks about the Blues Breakers now. Um, this band, yeah. Chicken Shack, was a big deal. And Christine Perfect was a big deal. Now, she will end up marrying another member of the band and becoming a musical part of it. But it needs to be remembered 
that in England, it was a big deal when she joined Fleetwood Mac because Christine Perfect had actually won awards and stuff as a female vocalist. She was she was known uh, in, in that era and in that time. So the the blues era of the band lasts a little while longer. But in late 1969, they're working on what becomes their first rock record. But Peter Green, who was really the originator of this whole outfit, is starting to get into LSD. And the story goes that at a particular party in 1970, he got a bad dose, and it just undoes him. And Ah. he ends up leaving the band in May of 1970. Now, quick side note. There's an awesome story that I came across that at his farewell show with the band, they wherever they were playing at, they had a curfew and they went past the agreed upon time. And so the venue cut the power and Mick Fleetwood just kept drumming. <laughs> so it's just like the best way to go out. If you're going to leave a band, I, I had a band in middle school, which I found our demos recently. If you ever want to hear something that's unlistenable, I'll let you hear them. Um <laughs> I, I was going through a box in the basement, and I was like, is this a cassette tape? And then I found a Walkman, and I got to hear my band from high school. And we played our last show in my drummer's backyard when I was 15 in a subdivision in small town Indiana, and the cops got called, for sure, right? And it felt like a perfect punctuation. It was a great way to end that chapter of my life. I feel like this is similar, right? If Peter Green is going to give up and go find God because the drugs got bad, this is a great way to go out. I want to ask you a lot of questions. So I, I, this has to be, and I'm sorry for our listeners that we have to get personal here. So Brian, you're playing. Okay, you're you're 15. Yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. Okay, I got I, I got the year. Okay, that sounds high. That's high school, though, right? 15. Uh, yeah, yeah. We would. I okay. think if this was early okay. high school. So you're playing in a suburban neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Are you playing? What are you playing? Bass or guitar? I'm, I'm playing bass because I was the worst guitar player in the band, and we didn't have a bass player. And you needed a bass player. Okay. Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah. And I've been I've been that guy of like, hey, we need a bass player. Yep, yep, yep. So okay, so tell me the song, the like top three songs you remember. Because you got the cops called on you. We played our and own music, but it's really funny because in these cool. in these demos, when I hear them, I immediately am like, "Oh, I know what we were listening to." Like we, so what, it was so what derivative. Were you listening to what were you listening? So to? there's in particular, there's a song that is very specifically "State of Love and Trust" by Pearl Jam. Like I could, I guarantee, I was listening to the single soundtrack or whatever album that was on. Uh, yeah, at the time which, that which I adore, and that's my favorite Pearl Jam song, and I can't believe we just had that happen. Okay, keep uh, going. Yeah, it's, we've talked about that before. That's, that song yeah. is the best. Um, it's our favorite Pearl Jam song, and I don't like Pearl Jam. I think Nirvana's better. I was also like hearing like Sunny Day Real Estate and like that air, that sort of type of like first wave emo for the first time. So there was stuff that was clearly like me sort of trying to rip that off. Yeah. Um, yeah, man. If there was, it, it, it was great. But we don't need to talk about this. We, we're going to talk about much more successful musical acts. <laughs> Sorry, it was just I, I wanted to hear about the cops getting called on you. Oh, that's hold on. Here, here. This is this is the demo. I found it. Listen. Oh my gosh. Get off! That's me yelling. <clears throat> this is the song that's totally uh, a state of love and trust. Totally a rip off of state of love and trust. Have this recorded. What the hell? I tell you, the, the best thing is to take your old high school demos and play them in front of your kids and just watch the look of disgust on their face. As as I get it, I I totally totally understand. <laughs> but you hear it, right? We were we were really into that Pearl Jam record. I think we were into Yield. Because I remember there was a whole group that I hung out that was weirdly into the Yield record, to give it the exact year that this would have happened. Um, okay, can, I, can I tell you, super funny, cops got called. I'm not playing in the band, but I have the record label that two of the bands are on. And, uh, and the cops show up, and I'm inside the house even though there's bands playing outside and someone comes downstairs. Oh dude. Oh my God. Hang on. This is so amazing. So it's not my apartment. I'm hanging out and doing like making sure the gigs work and, and just hanging out with my buddy. It's doing it. And they live underneath the dentist office. That's where the apartment is. <laughs> I'm not kidding. 
and somehow there was nitrous oxide. But but anyway, so but the but there there were there were bands playing in the parking lot, and someone comes downstairs and goes, "Hey, Murdoch, the cops are here." And I'm like, "All right." So I'll go out because I'm totally the least so, least sober person here, and I went out to talk to the cops. And uh, this police officer said to me, and I I, I said, "Hey, officer, uh, uh, how can I, do we need to turn everything down? I'm I'm sorry if we we had a complaint about noise complaint." And he said, "Well, yeah, it's a little loud, and plus it it really smells like marijuana here. So if you can make sure that all that goes inside, we're we we'll leave you alone." And I said, you got it, officer. And I turned around to a uh, hundred people. And I <laughs> Take said, the weed everybody, inside. Everybody inside. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know what else to do. I was like, everybody inside, dude. Let's let's all go inside this tiny apartment underneath the dentist office. Man, I I lived in a tiny apartment my second year of school. I moved in with my buddy Scott and I was so excited to have that and I wanted people to come see it. Like because it was the first space that was ever really mine, right? Yeah. And so I invited these people that I worked with, a couple of girls. I was like, "Yeah, you can come over." Yeah, no big deal. Just come over whenever you want. And one of them was like, "Oh yeah, I might bring a few friends." And I was like, "The girls are going to bring friends to my apartment? Great." What, what she didn't specify when she told me that was what she really meant was not, hey, I'm going to bring some friends. She was like, hey, I'm going to bring the entire exchange student program that I'm like mentoring to your apartment. And so at one point I opened the Score. door and no, and it was mostly dudes and it was like a huge line. And like this is a tiny like 500 square foot apartment with like three <laughs> rooms and they just there's nowhere to put them and they just keep coming in coming in and after about 15 of them file into the living room the landlord has seen them coming through the parking lot like they're and and she's in the middle of the line and she's screaming no parties no parties and i'm like i didn't invite any of these people i invited Carrie Carrie brought 27 people from the foreign exchange student program i didn't have anything to do with it. I've almost gotten kicked out of an apartment twice by the by by both they were both landladies and they and uh they were very they were very concise with their threat <laughs> which was if I have to show an apartment next door to you again and you're having a party or it smells like this I'm just calling the cops <laughs> it was like okay yes ma'am <laughs> Oh man! No more parties. So Fleetwood Mac, by the way. <laughs> so I apologize to that one iTunes reviewer who has let everyone know that we get off subject. It is true. Um, okay, it so is true. Here yeah. is here is where we're at. We're we're talking about the very early history of Fleetwood Mac, and we're headed like ten years in the future. So just hang on. Let's let's get back on track. We're okay. Peter Green, LSD, doesn't go well for him. And while we're talking about the pre-sex stuff, uh, but the drama that doesn't involve sleeping with each other, we there's a couple other guys in the band we need to talk about early in their history. Danny Kirwan and Jeremy Spencer. Now, I don't know if you know these dudes at all. No, this is new to me. But these, so are, guys, these are guys that are in the Mac, band. I don't know. They're, they're, yeah, they're in the band at the time. And within the year after Green leaves, Jeremy just disappears after the show classic unfaithful dad stuff where he's just like, I'm going to go buy a magazine. And then he's gone. Oh, legit. That's exactly how it happens. They figure out that he's joined a cult. You ever heard of God's children? He joins God's children. And what's God, what's God's children. It's a, I cult, know. It's a cult. I and, got it. <laughs> you see this rift on in movies over the years. Like there's a spin on this a little bit in one of my all time favorite flicks, that thing you do. Uh, where at the end the bass player disappears, but in the movie he joins the army. But uh, it, it's that sort of thing, right? Like, okay, yeah, just up and vanishes. Uh, after this, Danny Kirwan, they, 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 so they recruit Danny Kirwan when he's like eighteen, and so he's in the band for a little bit, and he like can't take the pressure, and he essentially has a nervous breakdown. Eighteen, yeah, jeez, holy, Christ. And he's a badass guitar player, and he gets fired after he smashes his custom Les Paul. Before a show, <laughs> which is a real rock star move, because normally you're supposed to do that after the show. He doesn't. Isn't it weird? That, isn't it weird that your timing with that maneuver could get you fired <laughs> or, or or lauded? Yeah, you could be the biggest rock star in the world for doing that, which is what Nirvana did. 
Right, right. Um, they had to warn people before they were really famous that they're if if they were playing with someone else's backline, they were going to break. We're going to everything. destroy your crap. Uh, yeah. So as you can see. Things are not super smooth for Fleetwood Mac ever. So I, I feel like all of this is important setup to say that when we get to the dysfunction in the mid-70s, eh, this is part of the course at this point. They've been through all kinds of stuff. Um, it, but, but here is where the crazy soap opera drama stuff sort of starts. So I told you about Mick Fleetwood and Ginny Boyd, the younger sister of Patty. Well, in all the lineup changes that they're having, the band hires new players because, you know, one of their guys joined a cult, and the other one smashed his guitar. And one of the guys that they hire is this dude named Bob Weston. And they go out on tour in 73, and Bob Weston and Jenny Boyd start a little fling in the 1973 tour. This is the early first firework, right? So this leads to one of the craziest legal battle BS things I've ever heard about and somehow did not know until doing the research for this show that this happened. So... This affair derails McFleetwood, and the band disintegrates almost instantaneously. Wow. And as I said, they're in the middle of a tour. So they basically quit with 26 concerts left on the tour. Oh, man. So I'm not going to get bogged down in all the details, but you can hit the show notes if you want to get in the weeds. Here's the summary. Their manager's losing his shirt. There's concerts to fulfill, and he doesn't have a band. He pulls some mafia boss stuff and claims rights to the name, hires new musicians, sends a fake Fleetwood Mac out on tour. Oh my gosh, this happened to Fleetwood Mac? I've never heard this. It makes me feel so much better that you didn't know this. Yeah, Yeah. no, this legitimately happens. The manager tells these musicians, so he gets them and they're not dumb. Fleetwood Mac has been around, right? And so he's like, no worries, guys. And they're all like from these bands that like you haven't had any sort of you know, afterlife, but like at the time where, you know, it was like guys that had been in bands that people had sort of heard of, but he he brings them all in and he's like, Mick Fleetwood's going to join you on the tour, but he has to miss the first few shows. So no big deal. Now Mick Fleetwood says that was never the deal. (laughs) Mick Fleetwood's like, I never said I was going to ever join this version of the band. (laughs) It works at first. So they go out and they play a few shows and people are like kind of into it because these are established musicians who know what they're doing. And I guess they're playing the songs. That's unclear. But pretty quickly, promoters and audiences figure out what's happening. And it completely falls apart. So again, because we have miles to go before we sleep, I won't spend a ton of time in this, but it, there's a lot that happens. Eventually, the real Fleetwood Mac comes back together with a new record deal, a new home base in America. They decide to move to America. And with new management, and that new management is themselves, which crazy basically wasn't a thing that happened in rock in this period. This was unheard of. So it's easy to get caught up in the, you know, the, the silly soap opera Hollywood stuff with Fleetwood Mac, but they really were groundbreaking band in a lot of ways. And this is one of them that they were managing themselves. Now, Let's get to the part of the show that you're excited about, which is happening across town. <laughs> From These guys move into America, and then across town, there, is, there, there are these two teenagers, Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. Do you, you want to take a guess at where they met? God, I don't know, but I, I know... <laughs> I know, I know how they. I know everything else about how they got in the band, and so they. No, you don't know <laughs> this. This is great. They meet at a Young Life meeting. Young Life is basically a Christian youth group. It's still around. You can Google whatever city you live in. Google Young Life, your city, and you will you will find a chapter. Probably they met at a Christian youth group. Dude, this makes me so happy. I just want to go to the folks who started that chapter of Young Life and make sure they know they are personally responsible. For all of what we are about to describe, <laughs> because because of all this this fucking record that has never going back again, and like go your own it's way, all like your fault. I mean, Jesus, Jesus brought Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks together. 
<laughs> Lizzie Buckingham. Every time I hear his name, I always think about Keenan Thompson on What's Up With That on SNL. But keep going. It's totally not what his legacy should be. It should be about these friggin' songs. So again, we have to make this long story somewhat short, so this isn't a five-hour episode, but Stevie and Lindsay meet in high school. Buckingham asks her to sing with his band a few years later. That band opens for a bunch of big names at the time, like Jefferson Airplane and Big Brother and the Holding Company, and they eventually become a duo. They get Polydor to sign them, and they start to create an album. Now, I want to briefly, I want you to control yourself, I want to briefly talk about the album cover. Do you know about the Buckingham Knicks album cover? Yes, I do. I'm going to say if you don't, I'm not going to describe it. Look it up. The story goes that Stevie bought an incredibly expensive shirt for the photo shoot. In 2022 money, it'd be like $600 shirt. The sleazy-ass photographer convinces her to go topless. And this seems very keeping with the era, right? And it is sort of shocking, partly, too, because it isn't a super famous album. And so when you're like, wait, that's a that's young Stevie Nicks, like like and you know you have a different relationship with Stevie Nicks, right? Because it's 2022. This it's a shocking album cover, and she was very anti that photo. She's come out and said she did not want that photo to happen, and they sort of talked her into it and told her to get over it and whatever. Now we'll leave that where it is. The album doesn't do anything, regardless of the racy album cover. Polydor va- barely supports it, but. It's produced by a guy named Keith Olsen. And Keith Olsen is hanging out in Sound City one day in L.A., and Mick Fleetwood runs into him. And Keith shows him a song that he just produced for this duo. And Mick likes it. And Keith is like, oh, well, if you like that, Lindsay's actually next door in this studio over here. Hold on. So he pulls him in. They meet and discuss... Because Mick is keeps running out of band members because they keep doing crazy stuff. <laughs> and Lindsay's like, cool. Yes, but my girlfriend has to be part of the deal. And he's like, cool, can I meet your girlfriend? He's like, well, she's waiting tables at this restaurant where she has to dress as a flapper. So why don't you get the band and we'll go get a bite and you can meet her there. And that's legitimately what happens. <laughs> wow, that's so crazy. <laughs> And that's how we get the most famous version of the band. Mick, John, Christine, Lindsay, and Stevie. So to properly understand the rumors recording and all the things happened during this time, there's a couple important ingredients to consider. And one is the pressure of following up on following up on success. Rumors is now considered their great work, but with this classic lineup, the first thing they do is they put out the self-titled record, which I referenced earlier. Yeah. And it's very successful. The album's a breakthrough for the band. And it reaches number one in the U.S. It sells seven million copies. And it has Over My Head on it. It has Say You Love Me on it. Uh, Rhiannon is on it. And Landslide, which... Landslide's on it, yeah. Actually doesn't become a hit for 20 years, but... Right. Does become a hit. It's not even a hit song. So... That's hard. When you've captured lightning in a bottle once, good luck doing it twice, right? So they all feel that. And they get to the second ingredient. I said there's a couple ingredients. So there's the pressure of following up on success, and then there's there's drugs. And there's a lot, a lot of drugs. There's a there's a lot of drugs. So um, for sure. There's a piece from Louder Sound in the show notes that's simply titled Stevie Nicks colon quote. All of us were drug addicts, but I was the worst. End quote. Now, of course, this is a bit of a chicken-egg situation because with all the turmoil around, which we're about to describe, this was an easy way to ease the pain, right? Stevie Nicks told Mojo in 2012, quote, you felt so bad about what was happening that you did a line to cheer yourself up. End quote. Yeah. I I, I read a thing where, or, or saw an interview with her where she talked about the amount of clonopin that she was taking. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, well, I, I've taken that, uh, from a physician and I couldn't believe that this was like, you know, fuck a dig clonopin all day. Like I couldn't imagine it was sort of like something I was taking to like, you know, chill out because I was unbelievably anxious. 
Um, but they, I'm sure she was snorting it too. You know, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm glad she made it. They've, sure. they've said that drugs were so much a part of this recording that they were literally, this is not a joke, planning to thank their dealer in the liner notes. <laughs> Nick Fleetwood says in his autobiography that the only reason they didn't do that was, quote, unfortunately, he got snuffed, executed before the book came out. Oh, or before oh, the album came out. Oh, my god! That's messed up. In an NME piece, Mick Fleetwood says, quote, It got out of hand way after the making of Rumors. I remember not working for two years, and I can't even remember what I did. Yeah. He basically says there's two years lost to him after Rumors because of how many drugs he was on. Now, we won't get into 80s Fleetwood Mac, which is a whole other thing. Wow. But that's a that's rabbit where- hole of drugs. Oh, my God. That's where you get to the real low point for Mick and what he's referring to. He goes bankrupt, and he lives on a cot in his buddy's house. Like oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Crazy. It's It's insane fall from grace stuff. So with all this as a backdrop, let's get into the soap opera. So we know the first firework. I referred to it earlier. Fleetwood finds out Jenny cheated on him. But like I said, that happened a few years before this, and it doesn't immediately end the marriage. They didn't get married until 70. Uh, they'd known each other and been on and off again for a long time. They get married in 70. This happens in 73. They're still together, but the relationship is in bad shape. And they're going through a divorce during the recording of Rumors. It finalizes during this period. And then they remarry for a year after it, from like 77 to 78. Weird. Now, this is a little unclear as to what is happening there, but I, I, here's my here's what I think is happening. Fleawood's family was super manipulative. And from what I've read, they, they used the children as leverage. And there were certain periods where, I mean, everybody's on drugs. So it's easy for extended family to be like, I'm going to take your kids and then use it against the other person. You know, I mean, they, they could have done it either way, right? But they're, you know, they're Mick Fleetwood's family. So they're saying like, nah, I don't want to think she's a fit mother. And so... I think that's what happens. Is I, I think at a certain point, they try to reconcile so that the, that situation gets eased. Now, speaking of divorce, the McVees at this point have been married for eight years. And that's falling apart. But they basically decide that they're just going to avoid each other and treat this like work. So they'll be totally quiet about the whole yeah. thing and only be physically together when they have to record. So they're doing that and they're trying to keep their crap together. But then rounding out the chaos <laughs> you have Lindsay and stevie who are also imploding never married but the relationship is ending and they have not taken this vow of silence that the mcvees have taken and they are being insane and loud about everything and it's all happening like in the studio the story goes that they were just always yelling at each other unless they were singing and then wow stevie is dating don henley yeah, she's dating Don Henley, and then there's other stuff happening. And then she starts sleeping with Mick. She starts sleeping with Mick, yeah. So, we've already talked I'm about... standing on a corner in Winslow, Arizona. It's such a fine sight to see. It's so weird, the Eagles. I'm so torn at times. Anyway, go ahead. Some of this... Uh... I don't want to get into it. Okay, so she's sleeping with Mick. Keep going. Well, I don't want to get sidetracked again. We've already talked about the the songs that Stevie and Lindsay are putting in each other's mouths, right during during all of this while this is all Be- happening. Beautiful, heartbreaking songs. But those weren't the only songs from the sessions that are about what was happening. Christine no. wrote "Don't Stop." Oh. Yeah, and Songbird. Well, and and "Don't Stop" is clearly about looking at ahead at life without Jock. And then, yes. and then, she writes a song about having sex with her lighting guy. What? I, I mean, it's not exactly about that, but it is. She openly starts a relationship with a guy on their crew. Is it the guy who just shines the light on her when she's singing "Songbird"? I probably. And oh, that's she, so he- that's so that's so weird and so heavy at the same time. So, <laughs> you know the song "You Make Loving Fun." It's her writing to this new guy. In like contrast to John, like John, the, you really made love a drag. This guy makes love and fun. The, wait, wait, wait. That song's about the lighting guy. Like yes, the, the spotlighting guy. Yes, the guy who, it's about a guy on their crew. I don't know if it's the particular guy on their crew who's shining the spotlight at her, but it's about a lighting guy on their crew. It would be 
only perfect if it was the guy. <laughs> Why wouldn't it be? Anyway, okay. It, it I, meant, I assume it wasn't significant enough that it's been documented. <laughs> which guy the, on their crew and, it is? Annals of time. But anyway, like okay. what his specific job was? Okay, and then he was he was in charge of making love and fun, Brian. I don't yeah, know what the hell yeah, he was. He's the captain of fun time, love it. Then there's the chain. Now, this song is funny and indicative of the whole situation, but not for the reasons most people say. So. All five members of this band have credit on that song. It's like the only song they all have credit on. And the story has been that this is some type some type of like a group anthem about how they were all chained together in this band, despite ah. the fact that it was happening. That's not what it's about, though. Yeah. So okay. they, they just named it The Chain <laughs> because it's a whole bunch of different songs that they shoved together because they had to oh, put one more song on the record. Yeah. I, it's, so so was there Frankenstein that because they put together? The, no one uh, wanted to collaborate because they all were like, I can't spend another moment in this room with these people. And then Stevie just wrote the BS lyrics at the end. Because if you listen, listen to it, it's to like, the wind blow. listen to the wind blow. That's not about the band. That's just some garbage that she made up when she was high. If you don't love me now, you will never love me again. I mean, there's something in there. Yeah, for sure. probably. Probably something. Probably some anger at Lindsay. So the album comes out, and it's a Great. huge success. <laughs> by, by the way, amazing album cover. If anyone hasn't noticed, there's a slight illusion in the album cover. If you look, like, sort of like below, like, his waist, and you look it looks like she has more than one arm and there's more, there's oh, more yeah. in the, and, and, and for me, there, there's not a like, you know, it's like, well, let me tell you what rumors covers about. I, I have it framed. I have, I have a copy of rumors framed in a glass fricking frame in my house. And I just think it's, you should look at it and it's open for your interpretation if you just take an extra look to see what they were doing, because it's interesting. At some point, I'm like, well, there's two balls. That just looks like a balls joke to me, because there's <laughs> you'll see that. And you're like, oh, that's balls. That's like, look at those balls. It's like a Cartman joke. But it's it's interesting. It's it, there's something going on there with the record. So this record comes out. They get the Rolling Stone cover story. Do you know off the top of your head who writes the Rolling Stone cover story. Who'd been covering Rolling? Uh, who'd been covering Fleetwood Mac for Rolling Stone since '73? Yeah, yeah, it's it's it uh, hit that guy, Cameron Crowe. Cameron Crowe. Thank you. Now, by the way, here are brains some, are done. Here are some quotes from Stevie from that piece. She says that she doesn't quote care that everybody knows me and Chris and John and Lindsay all broke up because we did. That's a fact. She also owns that most of what she wrote quote are definitely about people in the band. Chris's relationships, John's relationships, Mick's relationships, Lindsay and mine. They're all there and very honest, and people will know exactly what I'm talking about. People will really enjoy listening to what happened since the last album. <laughs> it's like a new episode of the pod. Uh, but the thing that has become the bigger takeaway from this Rolling Stone moment is less the article. Back to your, you're talking about the album cover, but let's talk about the Rolling Stone cover. Annie Leibovitz shoots them on a giant bed in various states of undress. So in 2006, there's a piece memorializing this Rolling Stone cover 30 years after the fact. And I'm just, I'm going to read sections of it, okay? On the day of the shoot, this is from the article, Leibowitz says, quote, I thought I'd be nice and polite, and I brought a bunch of cocaine for everyone. Oh my gosh, it's so freaking funny. In those days, for photo shoots, you just took cocaine. Like, that's literally what she says. In those days, you just took cocaine. I took it out. They looked a little freaked out at first, but then they consumed it in like 30 seconds. And then I learned they'd all recently been to rehab, so they were a little jittery intense. End quote. That's from Andy Leibowitz. But as funny as that is, here's where I want to end. This, for me, like, it's weird. Because, I mean, we're laughing a little bit, and, like, obviously, this is actually really sad, a lot of what we're talking about. And these 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 are folks who are in the throes of addiction and toxic yeah. relationships, and there's emotional abuse happening, and it's it's ugly. It, it's funny now for us, two dudes, goofing off, talking about rock and roll, but it is, it's upsetting stuff. 
And when I read this next thing I'm going to read you, this to me, it like hits me in a weird spot. It gets me a little emotional. So here's where I want to end. This is the punctuation on the whole episode spoken by those involved in a way that I think somehow sort of explains how the band continues to make music for decades. Because if you're really looking at this, it seems like the band is about to die. Like it's, it, with everything they've been through, it it doesn't seem like they're going to get another record. Not only do they get another record, they have a very successful career, a very weird period in the 80s, but a very successful career for, for decades more. And this is uh, from, that, from that memorial piece in 2006 about this uh, cover. Buckingham's memory of the session centers on something different. After Leibowitz finished, everybody got off the mattress except himself and Stevie. Wearing only their bedclothes, the two of them stayed where they were and just held each other. The wounds of their breakup were still raw, says Buckingham. Quote, after all that we'd been through, knowing that we loved each other, somehow we just couldn't get up. For five minutes, maybe more, Buckingham and Nix shared a silent embrace. Leibowitz and the rest of the band milled around until finally Mick Fleetwood returned to the mattress and whispered to the estranged, the estranged pair, Guys, you're freaking everybody out. <laughs> and this is Buckingham. Raw honesty was part and parcel of that band, and we couldn't hide our level of pain. God, man, that is crazy. What Co- a story. And by the way, Dave Chappelle, Rick James, they were right. Uh, Charlie Murphy, cocaine's a hell of a drug. Yeah. Man, uh, of course, there's many, many chapters left for Fleetwood Mac, as we've already alluded to. We haven't talked Tusk. We haven't talked solo careers. We haven't talked the time I saw Lindsay play solo on a Tuesday for like 400 people. But when it comes to how the seventh best rock and roll album came to be, this is where we step off the train for this episode. You have any anything else you want to throw in about rumors? Um, I, I do think that it opens perfectly. I with, love secondhand news, man. Yeah. And I think that that's like side two, you know, and like the chain, there's the chain and, and then secondhand news or like the, 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 the side openers and then songbird at the end of side two. I, I think it's sequence perfect for me. I, I love the record in terms of how, um, it's not a real hard head scratcher to be like, if I put it on, can I listen to it all the way to the end? It's like, of course I can. Every song on there is perfect. And, and they're all about really terrible, heartbreaking things. And it's why that art is beautiful. Absolutely. If you have a comment about rumors, if you want to get involved in the show in any way, if you have something you want us to research, we're clearly happy to do it. <clears throat> it's we are the story guys at gmail.com. And yeah. what should people keep doing until next time, Murdoch? Keep telling stories. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.